what happens when we die? Um, depending on what you believe, you know, you, maybe you wake up as, as a completely different being, or maybe you wake up in a, in a paradise with 72 uh, awkward virgins around you, or maybe you just wake up in, a, in front of the pearly gates while St. Peter looks over the guest list to make sure that you can get in. Um, whatever it is, you know, that's the optimistic way to look at it. Uh, if you're cynical and a pessimist, maybe you just believe that, uh, the, when you die, your life, you know, is, is just like the, the final, uh, scene in the Sopranos where it just cuts to black mid sentence and, and that's it. Um, whatever, whatever happens, you know, we don't, we don't know for sure, but, uh, this week we're going to look at three stories from people who, claim to have died and gone to an afterlife and then they came back and uh this this has gotten real deep real fast but uh that's it's just kind of how it goes sometimes it's our weird world our weird world Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson, and this week we are looking at the stories of Howard Storm, Pam Reynolds, and Matthew Botsford, uh, three people who died, and then they claim that they went to this afterlife, and then they came back to life on Earth, and now they're telling telling the story about it. Um, this is not going to be a religious episode, um, honestly, I think... Uh, as you listen to these stories, it's just going to affirm what you already believed, all right? Whether you um, believed in afterlife, you're going to think, oh man, this is it. This is this is the facts right here. This is the proof. And if you think that uh, that sort of stuff is stupid, then you're going to think, yeah, wow, these people are crazy. There's no way that's real. So um, it's kind of just how things go today in, in today's world um, where just even if you're presented evidence that contradicts what you believe and proves that what you believe is wrong, uh, it's just going to make you double down and believe what you believe that much more. Um, that's why you can't have arguments on the internet or with your family about politics or religion or anything like that, because, uh, people are very set in their ways, regardless of how conservative or progressive you may think you are, we are all very much set in our ways. And it takes, uh, it's, it's almost an impossible task for someone to convince us to change our mind about something. So that's not what we're going to do in this episode. I'm just going to tell you a couple stories and then we'll go on with the rest of our lives. All right. So let's, let's jump into it. Our first story today is the story of Howard Storm, and it starts uh, in June of 1985 when uh, Howard, who was an art professor at Northern Kentucky University, was on a field trip uh, in Paris with his students, which, like, who who in college is going on field trips? I miss that. I was in college for six years. We did not go on a single field trip, and I'm a little sad that I missed it all. But he was on a field trip in Paris with his students when he suddenly felt this severe pain in his abdomen. Um, His wife, who was with him on the trip, rushed him to a nearby hospital where he was diagnosed with a duodenal perforation, which 
I know you have no idea what that means, but it's okay because I'm going to explain it to you. Uh, basically, his intestines exploded. All right. Um, your duodenum is a thing inside you. I don't know where it is, but it's in there somewhere. And, uh, you know, it, it can explode apparently. So, you know, that's why it's important to not get super constipated or eat too much or, um, you know, anything like that. You know, it's, it's good to stay regular and, and have your regular bowel movements. Otherwise your intestines will explode. Um, the earliest surgery that could be performed was in eight really excruciating hours. And Howard, believed that he wouldn't last that long and he mentally prepared himself to die. And then after saying his final goodbyes to his wife, he passed out. Like this dude's super dramatic, but also like most dudes who have a low pain tolerance. Yeah, we're going to be super dramatic about it. Um, almost immediately though, Howard woke back up or kind of, so we thought he did. Um, but things really this time were pretty different. Um, mainly because he noticed that he was standing outside of his body and looking down at his hospital bed as his wife cried over him and the pain was gone and he was very acutely aware of everything going on around him. And he tried calling out to his wife, but she just didn't see or hear him. She was just crying over basically his dead body. Suddenly uh, Howard heard several voices call out to him from the hallway. And so he kind of floated over into the hallway and followed the voices thinking they were taking him to a doctor Instead, he saw a group of pale, like humanoid-looking creatures motioning for him to come toward them, exclaiming that they had been waiting for him. And it's like, Howard, yay, Howard, you're here. We've been waiting for you. Come on, come on, dude. Let's go this way. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure that's how they sounded. Um, <laughs> when Howard refused, though, uh, because, I mean, yeah, that seems weird. Like, you're looking at these creatures you've never seen before, and they're like, hey, come on. Come on, come on, Howard. Come on. He's like, I don't, I don't know. I kind of want to, you know, should probably stay with my wife. She can get mad. And so when he refused, these creatures became increasingly angry and eventually attacked him. And Howard tried to start fighting him off. All of a sudden, he heard this voice that said, pray to God. And this was odd because Howard had been an atheist all of his life. And the... He, but somehow he began reciting portions of the Bible and the Pledge of Allegiance for some reason. Um, and each time he said God, in, either in the Pledge of Allegiance or in the, in the Bible verses that he, that he was reciting, the creatures would kind of back away. And then once they had disappeared, he called out to Jesus. And within seconds, these, quote, spiritual beings of light appeared from somewhere and rescued him. These spiritual beings took Howard... Uh, somewhere and they replayed his entire life though it was mostly just the bad parts that he kind of would have rather skipped over um that's honestly and and like i always wanted that to happen when i was a kid like if i died i wanted to go into like a movie theater and watch my entire life and have some questions answered like now now i'm not so sure i want to do that because eh, whatever but <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I thought it was funny that this, this guy kind of said the same thing that I had always kind of imagined as a kid. Um, he, as he was watching his life, he asked several questions to the being and he was told that the United States was a blessed nation though. Um, 
there were some spiritual changes that were required to happen or else it would lose its prosperity. Um, Howard saw visions of a world being torn apart by wars and natural disasters, but he was told that all of that could be avoided if the world just experienced a major spiritual shift. And before he was let go, Howard was told that the correct religion was the one that, quote, brings you closest to God. So, hey, you know, that's that's an important uh, point here. Um, he wasn't told that the correct religion was Christianity. He was just told whatever brings you closest to God, because God is more than just one religion. Let's get real deep here, guys. All right. God is everywhere, man. You know, and, and what what works for Dave? You know, if we remember Dave. Hey, Gath. Hey, hey, Gath. Hey, it's me, Dave. I'm I'm the first recurring character on, on our weird world. And um, I'm just here to tell you that um, what worked for me was believing that an alien spaceship was flying behind a comet. And that and I felt really close to God there, mainly because I thought God was Marshall Applewhite. And uh, I thought he was God because he said he was God. He, he did. He said he was God. And I felt really close to him. And so that that that's what worked for me, you guys. Maybe it didn't work for you, you know. Maybe, 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 maybe you think uh, Catholic Jesus or Baptist Jesus or uh, Buddha or whatever the Hindu God is or whatever or Allah or whatever. Maybe those, you know, are, are what make you closest to God. And that's kind of the point that that he's trying to make. Thanks, Dave. Uh, say hi to all the aliens for me. That's great. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Howard awoke uh, back in his regular body as he was being prepped for his uh, surgery, which was ultimately successful. And as he recovered, uh, a voice told him to ignore the doctor's advice and return home in a week. All right. It's probably the same voice he heard when he was dead, quote unquote. Um, Despite every doctor in Paris telling him that was a terrible idea, uh, Howard did it anyway. And upon landing in Cincinnati, where where he kind of you know was close to living, uh, Howard was then rushed to the hospital with pneumonia, a collapsed lung, periantitis, and hepatitis. Like yeah, because you don't leave the hospital fresh out of surgery. You need some time to recuperate. But seven months later, Howard made a full recovery. And still kind of shaken by his experience, he actually became an ordained minister and shared his story with Oprah at the Today, the Today Show, Discovery Channel, and several other uh, media outlets. And so that's, yeah, he's sticking to it. He's sticking to that, that true story. Um, next one is the story of Pam Reynolds. Uh, in 1991, uh, 35-year-old Pam Reynolds had a giant aneurysm at the base of her brain. And although she was given little chance of survival, she was referred to Dr. Robert Spetzler in Phoenix, who had recently perfected this new procedure called hypothermic cardiac arrest that allowed him to more easily treat aneurysms. This process basically involved cooling a patient's body to 60 degrees, stopping the heartbeat and breathing, and then draining the blood from the brain. Basically doing everything to just temporarily kill somebody, but not... uh, basically keeping them cold enough so that their body didn't start to decompose. Um, Pam underwent the surgery with over 20 doctors, nurses, and technicians in the room with her. Several instruments were placed on and in her body to monitor her vital signs. A set of speakers producing a series of clicks was placed in her ears to monitor her brainstem. And as the anesthesia hit her at 7.15 a.m., um, Pam went to sleep like she was supposed to. Uh, but soon after, just like with Howard, she began to hear music that pulled her out of the top of her head, 
which is a weird kind of visual, but I guess like she saw herself just kind of like out of her, out of her own head. That was weird. Um, within seconds, Pam was looking down at herself and she noticed that the medical team had shaved part of her head and Spetzler, uh, the surgeon was using a bone saw to cut out part of her skull. She listened as one of the surgeons commented on how small the arteries in her right leg were, which were making it impossible to handle the amount of blood flow required by the machine to keep it pumping throughout her body. At that point, she watched doctors open up her other leg. Uh, Three hours into the surgery, Spetzler began draining Pam's blood, placing it in chilled reservoirs and returning it to her body, you know, cooling her down. But... By the time her body had uh, body temperature had reached 60 degrees, her brainwaves flattened, her heartbeat stopped, and her brainstem shut down. For all intents and purposes, Pam is super dead at this point. But according to Pam, she was still just kind of like floating above her body, just kind of watching everything take place. And while all of that was going on, Pam felt like she was spinning up into the air through a tunnel, almost as if she had vertigo, which that sucks. All right. I've had vertigo. It's not fun. All right. The movie does not really do it justice. All right. Basically, if you've ever had vertigo or if you've never had vertigo, imagine um, basically putting yourself in one of those giant bubbles and then rolling yourself down a down a hill. All right. That's basically what it, what that's basically what it's like. Um, let's see where are we at here. Uh, Pam quickly began hearing her grandmother calling to her. So Pam kind of continued moving through this tunnel toward this small point of bright light. Oh, look, here we go. Here's a classic, you know, walking towards the light thing. Um, When Pam came to the end of the tunnel, she sensed that there were several people there in the light, but it was so bright that she couldn't really make out, you know, the actual physical figures. And then that's when she kind of realized like those figures were the light. You know, they weren't actual bodies, you know, and there was like a bright light behind them, but like they were what was creating all of that light. And eventually her eyes kind of adjusted and Pam recognized her grandmother, her grandfather, her uncle Jean, her great, great aunt Maggie, um, you know, all of these deceased relatives and the people standing in front of her, um, they, they prevented her from walking fully into the light saying that if she did something would happen to her physically and that they would be unable to return her back to her body. All right. So so she steps into this light. She just, she for sure dies on the operating table, apparently, um, Pam then began to feel as though she were being fed, but not with food, but with sparkles, you know, because heaven's a, heaven's a real sparkly place. And and in heaven, you eat sparkles instead of like steak or something. Um, (laughs) I said, I was, I was, I kind of hinted that I was going to try to be neutral in this, but some of this stuff is, is a little, little weird. Uh, four hours into the surgery, Spetzler tilted the operating table and drained all of the blood from Pam's body. Uh, when the aneurysm sac drained, or with the aneurysm sac drained, Spetzler fixed the problem and then went to work bringing Pam back to life. Her blood was warmed and put back into her body, and the heart-lung machine that facilitated her heartbeat and breathing was turned back on. Meanwhile, uh, back in like the heavenly dimension or wherever Pam was, uh, she and her dead family members were looking at each other and decided that it was time to go back. Uh, Pam's grandmother said that she couldn't take her back, so her Uncle Gene offered to do it. And when Pam arrived at the other end of the tunnel, she still, you know, she saw her body still laying there and Pam was pretty horrified by this. Uh, apparently she looked awful 
and looked as if she were dead because, you know, she was. Um, Pam didn't want to get back inside of her body, but Jean told her it was just like jumping into a swimming pool. And after a push from Jean, which is funny, it's just like Jean just kind of like pushed Pam from the, you know, purgatory netherworld or wherever she was and just, you know, pushed her back into her body. And Pam said it was was a painful reentering. Um, as the warming process continued, Pam's brainstem reactivated and her brainwaves began pulsing. However, Pam's heart still wasn't beating like they wanted it to, and surgeons were forced to use a defibrillator to shock it back into motion. But after being clinically dead for more than one hour, Pam was placed in a recovery room completely alive at around 2 p.m. So this had been like a, a seven-hour surgery. Um, Pam, uh, went on to make a full recovery from this and, uh, eventually she died in 2010 of heart failure at age 53. So that was her story. Like she was super adamant that all of that was super true. Um, the last one here happened uh, a year later in 1992, uh, when Matthew Botsford and his business partner were leaving a restaurant in Atlanta one evening and they were waiting outside for a taxi. Just outside the door, uh, two men who had been denied entry into that same restaurant got upset and started shooting their Uzis, you know, because Atlanta, and just shooting all willy-nilly all over the street. Uh, One bullet went through the head of Botsford's business partner and killed him instantly. Uh, Botsford took a bullet in his own head and immediately hit the pavement. Uh, In the real world, uh, Botsford was picked up by paramedics and revived three times on the way to the hospital. Uh, Once he got admitted, doctors placed him in a medically induced coma, and he stayed in that coma for the next 27 days. However, while all of that was going on, Botsford's consciousness was in a very different place. Um, While in his coma, he vividly remembered being suspended completely naked over a pit of red hot lava inside a dark cavern. His wrists and ankles were shackled like crucifixion style, and as the lava flowed beneath him, it bubbled up and seared his legs, burning the flesh off of his bones. Uh, Within minutes, though, his legs healed themselves, kind of like a starfish, and the process began all over again. Uh, Then, demons with super sharp teeth, dark oval eyes, scales, and horns, they showed up. You know, because he's in hell, guys, if you didn't figure that out already. Um, They began mocking and judging Botsford for all of the things he'd done in his life before kind of floating around him and molesting them, or molesting him with their long, sharp fingernails. Go ahead and figure out that visual because it's probably what you're thinking you know it's little demons running around poking poking botsford with their with their fingernails you know in places that you know you don't want to be poked um before botsford could fully understand why all of this was happening a giant hand burst through the cavern walls and filled the room with a bright white light and then this hand grabbed botsford by the waist like king kong his that's what his description was not not me trying to be funny um and broke Botsford's shackles and lifted him out of the cavern. At that point, uh, Botsford awoke from his coma, paralyzed on his left side, weighing just 95 pounds and having all the functionality of a newborn. A few years later, Botsford had gone through so much physical therapy, but he was fully functional. And, you know, he had to relearn everything after spending all of his time in therapy. And not surprisingly, as soon as he got out of the hospital, he opened a Christian ministry. Um, What's a lot of people, though, um, are very critical of Botsford's story in particular uh, because um, it mirrors a lot of the vision of Dryhelm, which I mean, I know you guys are all familiar with the vision of Dryhelm. I I don't need to uh, explain it to you because 
everyone who listens to this has been a religious scholar at one point. Um, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, Drytham was a Scottish layman who appeared in the fifth book of Beattie's Ecclesiastical History of the English People in 731 AD. And basically, according to the story, Drytham died in his sleep but woke the next morning. And while dead, Drytham saw a lot of the same things Botsford saw, including the demons and the bright white light. And after waking up to the horror of his family who thought he had turned into a zombie, Drytham divided his land among his wife, kids, and the local poor people. Uh, he then left everyone and moved to the town of Melrose to live in a monastery. Uh, Botsford basically kind of did a lot of that, but he just went to spend on, uh, went on to spend a lot of time in a church. And that concludes today's stories. <laughs> So yeah, what do you think? What yeah yeah, is it are they telling the truth, um, or are they nuts, or is there a logical explanation for stories like this? Maybe I've got a little nugget of knowledge for you uh, right now. What did we learn? Number one, all three of these people um, claim that what they experienced truly did happen. Um, 100%, their stories really haven't changed that much, uh, if at all. And they are completely convinced that they totally died, totally went to some sort of afterlife, albeit heaven or hell, and came back to tell about it. Uh, number two. So kind of one thing that I didn't mention, uh, in Pam's story is that once she got out of surgery, she was able to tell doctors what made her story. So attention grabbing was the fact that she was able to tell doctors what she saw and what she heard people saying, you know, the, the point that I made about the nurse saying that her artery and her leg was too narrow she retold that to doctors and they were totally shocked at how she remembered that. Um, she told them how she saw the surgeon using the saw and shaving her head and all that kind of stuff. And so that's what made these, her story in particular really interesting in that she was able to redescribe details, um, back to the surgeon and the doctors when she was, allegedly not even alive or under heavy, heavy, heavy sedation at the time. Uh, number three, something that I didn't cover at all, but I'm going to tell you right now. Um, there was a study that came out, um, a while back that basically said that right after you die, your brain is still active for up to seven minutes after your heart stops beating. And that is something that scientists and, and researchers kind of point to as a possible explanation for why people may have these sorts of experiences. You know, uh, if you're, you know, it, when you die, your brain just still active, maybe even hyperactive. And, you know, it, it kind of just goes through your entire memory bank. And so if you grew up in a religious environment, or even if you've passively heard it, you know, and then you also have like subconscious fears or doubts about what actually happens after you die. Those sorts of things can kind of meld together and create like this sort of dream world that you're in 
where maybe you do really go to heaven or hell or wherever you think you are at the time. And that's what you perceive as being real and in the moment and taking such a long time when really it could take just about seven minutes, but who knows? I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know you guys. I don't really, I don't know. That's just a thing that I saw that provides a possible explanation for why all this happened. Next week on Our Weird World, uh, we're celebrating Mother's Day. Uh, Mother's Day will be kind of to end that week. And uh, we're going to celebrate moms the only way we know how. And that is to highlight some really horrible moms from history. Uh, We're going to look at the stories of Mary Cotton, uh, Judy Buenoano, Mary Beth Tenning, and that's it. Those three. That's what it is. I was looking at my notes and guys, look, here's the thing. I don't, I kind of just wing this as I go because, um, a, it's more real, right? I'm not trying to do an NPR show here. And also look, there's like, there's like five of you who listen at this point. So, um, like I appreciate you sincerely, but like if there was a thousand people listening, I might put a little more effort into it. Probably not. I probably not. I do this for me and my own enjoyment. I I mean, if you're here, great. Glad you enjoy it. But uh, this is just my fun little arts project that I'm doing. Anyway, uh, Horrible Moms next week. So thank you for listening. Really, I do appreciate it. Uh, Even if the production quality is not great. Uh, But yes, thank you for listening. Uh, Keep telling your friends about the horrible production quality. I'm sticking to, I don't know why I'm fixated on this now all of a sudden. Um, But remember, keep it weird. (laughs) 